Morning. Thanks for having me up here. Um, it's really great to be able to share with you today. Um, and uh, I just wanted to start by kind of saying, who's excited about Christmas? Because I'm kind of excited, but like having Christmas decorations up right now in October is a bit worrying for me. But um, in Sydney, when we're in Sydney, you could always go into the city and the, the clothing store David Jones always used to have these big displays on and they come out in October and it kind of heralds the fact that Christmas is about to come. It kind of reminds you, oh, that's right, uh, I better save for some gifts or, you know, it gets us excited. There's kind of something that's coming on the horizon um, with that kind of Christmas day. And at the moment, we're in a series of uh, what if. And we weren't in that series till last week. Uh, well, till this week, really, because there's now two talks on what if the church could be something more than what it is. And I really want to kind of pr- probe that a little bit more as to what if the church is more than what we think it is. Far more than us singing a few songs, listening to a message. What if God was wanting to do something in the world far bigger than we could ever imagine or could ever imagine? Uh, what could happen if we all started thinking with a what-if mentality? Somehow God has chosen this to be something more. And I think we can all agree that we disagree on many points. However, our common thread is our belief in Jesus, or at least our wanting to learn more, or curiosity in Jesus. Do we agree on the gospel? What is the gospel? What if God was wanting to do something in the world far bigger than we could imagine through His Spirit, through His church? There's kind of a narrative context that goes with the story of the gospel, and it requires the whole story to kind of understand the whole gospel, although it's not necessary to understand the whole gospel to be saved. It requires, we need this lens to kind of hear and understand the gospel. I feel like without the context, it's like saying, Jesus is a good news, really raises more questions that solves than it solves any of life's problems. Who is Jesus? What is a good news? Why is it good news? Is it good news? Is it for everyone? Is it for a few? Without the right lens or context, uh, it's like telling your taxi or Uber to go to an address in a different city. It just doesn't make any sense. I think we should get a good definition of the word gospel, uh, which is a tricky one, because I feel like we need to get a bit of historical context to try and understand what was trying to be communicated by the word gospel. And this allows me to indulge myself with a little segue while I was preparing for this message. (laughs) Israel has been under occupation by foreigner armies for hundreds of years. Around Jesus' time, the Jewish nation is a hodgepodge of different cultures. Caesar Augustus is emperor, emperor of Rome. Jerusalem is under Roman occupation since about 40 BC. And if we back up to the point where Israel is its own kingdom, that's about 700 BC, We've got northern and southern kingdoms, and the northern tribes is taken out by Assyria. Judah, the southern kingdom, lasts about another hundred years as a monarchy, and then Babylon takes them out. Assyria then crumbles as a world power, and Babylon steps into this role. Babylon lasts about a hundred years or so. Then the Medes and the Persians join first forces with a guy named Cyrus, comes to power in the ancient, Cyrus comes to power in the ancient world, and that's about 500 BC. Then the Persians are on the scene for a couple of centuries, and that's where we get the stories of Esther and Xerxes, uh, or all from that time. And I've got a little note here to remember that Xerxes is with two X's, so if you need to spell that somewhere. Um, then Alexander the Great 
conquers much of the known world. Heard of this guy? He brings Greek religion, culture, gymnasiums, the Olympics, people debate politics, and that's in the 300 BC. And the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament, is essentially being collated during this time. It was a main source of hope and inspiration to the Hebrew people. One imperial oppressor after another, the Jewish people did have a diversity of response to the cultural changes. Some Hebrews love the culture and hang out in the gymnasium all the time, go to the theatre and debate politics. The Hebrew Bible at this time is translated into Greek, the original Hebrew and Aramaic. This is called the Septuagint, which uh, means the translation of the 70, and it derives itself from a story of Paltomy, Philadelphia, whereby he gets 70 Jewish scholars, or later, 72 um, Jewish scholars, six from each of the 12 tribes of Israel, to independently translate the Hebrew to the Greek. And as a miraculous part of that story, that all the translation were held to be identical. And this was by the ancient Hellenistic Jews and later Greek-speaking Christians as their Old Testament. And once this Alexander the Great, his kingdom, once he dies, his kingdom which stretches all the way from Greece to India, gets divided up. Lots of battles over Israel during this time, as the Syrians in the north and the Egyptians in the south essentially fight battle after battle over Israel, power-hungry foreign oppressors. Then Rome rises to power over the ancient world. Rome appoints a semi-Jewish royal figure over the province. His name is Herod the Great. He's part Jewish. This is the Herod that we meet in the Bible stories of Jesus extremely wealthy, particularly corrupt. By the time Jesus is born, there has been multiple revolts and rebellions. So Herod is always dealing with some new uprising by a Jewish rebellion, although those rebellions probably refer themselves to as freedom fighters, as they're living on the homelands that for over 500 years or half a millennium not being able to rule themselves. And scriptures tell the Jewish people of a story of restoration, the Hebrew scriptures provide hope and inspiration that the glory days of David and Solomon are going to come again and that as a people, the Jewish nation is going to be a light to all nations by being faithful to their God. And it's into that melting pot of culture, gods, power, corruption, kings, it's into that setting that the Jesus story is born. And at this time, it's all too common for the emperor to claim good news about themselves and how they brought about peace and prosperity to the people, generally by having a giant army and winning many battles. Good news was typically a proclamation that things would never be the same again. Peace and justice had come, and they were responsible for it. Never mind the death and destruction, I'm king now. You'll have peace and prosperity. The emperor and God would be a blurred line. I'm going to read from you... Uh, a thing from the, uh, it's called the Prayin calendar inscription. Uh, Prayin's a place in Western Turkey. And this is an inscription that was found on a stone tablet and it refers to the birthday of Augustus Caesar as the beginning of an era. The beginning of a gospel announcing his kingdom that heralded peace and salvation for his people. And a Roman decree to start a new calendar system based on the year of Augustus Caesar's birth. Since providence, which has ordered all things and is deeply interested in our life, has set most perfect order by giving us Augustus, whom she filled with virtue, that he might benefit mankind, sending him as a saviour, both us and for our descendants, that 
might end war and arrange all things, since he, Caesar, by his appearance, excelled even our anticipations, surpassing all previous benefactors, and not leaving to posterity any hope of surpassing what he has done. And since the birthday of the god Augustus was the beginning of the good tidings for the world that came by reason of him. Pretty extreme birthday card. The word good tidings here, though, is the Greek word evangelion, which means good news. It's the same word that is used in the proclamation of the gospel, that something is new. And the word news these days is far too common a kind of an occurrence because we have the news at midday and five and at six and at seven. Um, and back then, in its historical context, it was far less common and it was treated with great importance. And there's probably a few people here who might remember the death of King George VI and the, the proclamation went out that there's good news that we have a queen. Um, others might uh, here might actually remember the end of the Second World War as a, an announcement that would change all things. And this is the same language that the gospel authors use when they proclaim that Jesus of Nazareth is the one who brings true peace and justice to the world. The same language, but it's a kind of slightly different narrative or story. Through the lens, we can hear this gospel, this good news. Mark uses this uh, Greek word, euangelion, when he describes at the very start of his account of the gospel, and we'll just bring up the words for you there, if that's all right. Where um, Mark, in Mark 1, the, the beginning of the good news, the euangelion of Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God. Messiah is Hebrew for anointed one, just the same as Christ is Greek for anointed one. Generally, in these gospel accounts of Jesus, the writers don't normally explain exactly who Jesus is. They tend to leave it up to the characters in the story or the reader to respond to the text. Similarly, you know, who do you think Jesus is? And this is the good news here um, about Jesus or the gospel. He's bringing some good news. And it has been said that the main mode of many Christians read the Bible in is a, the kind of lessons for my life approach to the Bible. There is a deeply held assumption that the Bible is a moral handbook and each story giving me a life application lesson that I can apply to my life. And I'm not sure that that's what the gospel authors are trying to do here. The gospel accounts are tying in Jesus' story as a fulfilment of the Hebrew scripture storyline, which is the story of Israel and all humanity. And then all of them are, are saying that the story leads up to a moment, the moment of Jesus' execution on a Roman cross. That moment in time marks the start of Jesus' reign as king. His resurrection shows us that he's divine. It's a simple point, but that's a gospel writer's main point. The start of Mark's account of the gospel includes something incredible, however. In verse 14, I'll just bring that one up. Jesus goes to Galilee pronouncing the, proclaiming the good news of God. In the previous section, Jesus is the good news. However, Jesus' good news is that he's proclaiming some good news of God. The time has come, the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news, or the euangelion. So what's the good news that Jesus is proclaiming? He's proclaiming not about himself, or is he? It's remarkable stuff here. Jesus, at the beginning of his ministry, proclaims the gospel of the kingdom of God, the good news of the kingdom of God. He is the anointed one who is to be king. Jesus is talking about God being king, 
so that people can understand what he's doing. Most stories in our culture end up with the good guy beating the bad guy, more or less, in the end, typically using force and violence to triumph. Jesus' story claims that Jesus triumphed or became kin, king by allowing himself to be killed by his enemies. He was then raised from the dead and gives his enemies an opportunity to enter into a new life by believing in him. And many of us have grown up in a Christian culture where we've been taught that the gospel is a more specific verse than in Mark. The gospel is about how I personally can become saved. This is how do I make sure I'm going to heaven when I die. The word gospel has often been narrowed down to a specific moment, referring to the moment of a cross as a substitute death. This is what the word gospel means to many of us. What a strange thing. When the word is referred to in the New Testament, it always refers to Jesus launching the kingdom of God. The good news is about the reign of a new king, a new world order, God's kingdom, Jesus being king, where the world will never be the same again. This is what the first four books are about in the New Testament. Who is king and how they became such. Ancient biographies about Jesus, four different points of view, one central claim, the kingdom of God is now here. Just go to the text in Romans. No, I didn't actually do a slide. That's good of me. Um, there's a text in Romans, um, at the very start of Romans, which is Romans 2 to 4, which is a key passage for the church. And um, this has, in its introduction for us, as the good news of God, that we're included in it. What if the church was far more than what we think it is? What if God was wanting to do something in the world far bigger than we'd ever imagine or could ever imagine? What could happen if we all started thinking with this kind of what-if mentality? Somehow God has chosen this to be something more. Jesus in Matthew's gospel at the end of chapter 4 goes throughout Galilee teaching in synagogues and proclaiming the good news of the kingdom. Matthew's account of the gospel has a real kind of Moses bend to it. It's written to evoke within the reader these kind of narrative comparisons uh, with the stories of Moses. Uh, prior to the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus spent 40 days in the wilderness, a narrative comparison with the 40 years spent in the desert. The Sermon on the Mount, a well-known piece of scripture, but kind of narratively comparable to the Ten Commandments coming down with Moses. The Beatitudes are the start of this um, Sermon on the Mount, and they're typically interpreted as ethical to-do list. Made famous by the life of Brian, blessed are the cheesemakers, um, is kind of how I start to remember them, and then I remember that cheesemakers is not one of the, uh, the Beatitudes. But, you know, we know them pretty much, you know, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are those who mourn, blessed are the meek, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, blessed are the merciful, blessed are the pure in heart. N.T. Wright, who's a New Testament scholar, claimed that these Beatitudes are meant to model what God's kingdom actually look like. They represent like a corporate moral ethic for God's kingdom, showing the world what it looks like when God becomes king and showing how God's kingdom spreads throughout the world. Matthew really neatly puts this in his narrative of the gospel. Jesus announces the good news of God's kingdom 
Jesus is soon to put this reality into being. And then the Sermon on the Mount about living in the community of the kingdom, what it looks like to live if God really is king. These Beatitudes are a picture of the type of people through whom God's kingdom is exercised in the world. And the cynic in me has an obvious response, and that if you say that God became king through Jesus, just read the newspaper or watch the TV. Why are people on the streets? Why does so much inequality exist? Why is there war? It's obvious God's not in charge. And to that, the answer is, when God takes charge, he doesn't send in the warplanes or the tanks. He sends in the meek, the poor, the hungry for justice, the merciful, the peacemakers. And by which time those with the warplanes and guns have realised what's going on, the meek, the poor in heart, the peacemakers have established orphanages and hospitals and social change movements, all sorts of projects to show what it looks like when Jesus is king. That is against the day when all those things will be part of God's new world because they were already beginning in Jesus. By us, being these types of people is how God's kingdom comes into being into the wider world. At the very beginning of Acts, so this is a Luke-Acts narrative, the author of Luke also wrote Acts, and he writes something very simple here, but there's something very specific to show you, is that in my formal book, Theophilus, I wrote that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up into heaven after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit and the apostles he had chosen. Implies there that Jesus began some work and there's work to be done. Jesus began and we will continue that as his church in the world. What if God was wanting to do something in the world far bigger than we'd ever imagine or could ever imagine? I suspect that we as a church need to have these qualities. We need to be meek, poor, hungry for justice, merciful, these types of people. Not using traditional mechanisms of power, being meek, merciful, bringing about a world where Jesus really is king. We are blessed in these roles. And it's not simply a blessing for us, but it's also through us. God gives his blessing through Jesus, who gives the blessing through his church. The church gives that blessing to the world. Jesus' announcement of the kingdom creates a people who, in the Sermon on the Mount, are invited to live in a new way. Not set apart, but in the midst and differently. It doesn't look like they are the fortunate ones, according to those people around them, but that's through whom the blessing will flow to the whole world, light in the darkness, soul to the earth, city on a hill. You all are a city on a hill, soul to the earth. You are all a lamp. We are a light. We are the church on the corner. We are Dalkeith Road. Part of the point of early Christianity, the church, the church, is although some people think we're mad, people like having us around. We're liked in the community because we rejoice with those who rejoice and we weep with those who weep. We're merciful. We are the peacemakers, among other things. Somehow God has chosen for this to be something more and he's given us our design of what it looks like. And Grant covered this last week, but it's such a good point, I have to go back over it. In Paul's letter to the Ephesian church, Um, it reads that God put everything under Jesus' feet, all power, everything. And it would seem appropriate that that would be the case. He is, after all, a fulfillment of the Hebrew Scriptures, the good news, the Messiah, the Christ, the King, with the new modus operandi for his kingdom, brings about real peace and justice. Jesus, 
is in charge. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him, who fills everything in every way. That is, if you can handle it, the fullness of Jesus is in the church. It's quite mystical how that even works, that somehow the fullness of Jesus, Jesus is present in the world in the most powerful and with all authority through us. So what's the point? The point is, what if Jesus has come into the church through his spirit to be in the world today? What if we are the kingdom of God, through whom these blessings are given in the Beatitudes flow, through God's spirit? The spirit has been poured out on us to be in the world, to be Christ in the world. And that's good news. That's the good news of God. That's the story. That's how the blessing goes. Jesus wants his church to be in the world, to be him in the world, to give blessing in this community. We want to be Christ in this community by his spirit. Have you ever imagined um, an actual quite toffee English banquet where you might go, say, to not the Queen's house but almost the Queen's house and what that might look like and how terrifying you would be when out in front of you is like nine spoons and 16 forks and then course after course comes and you're not really sure about how to eat it. It's like we're invited to this amazing banquet and there's two things you need to do when you're invited to a party. Anyone? You've got to RSVP. The first thing you've got to do is tell the host you're coming so he can make sure there's food for you. That's that, well, We call it manners, but that's the first thing you do. The second thing is you enjoy yourself and you eat the meal in the way in which the meal is supposed to be eaten. There's no use using your butter knife to cut the steak. You've got to know which particular knife, fork, spoon goes where and for what course it is. And you may have been in that situation at a Chinese restaurant when you don't know how to use chopsticks yet that's all that's provided. You can't say, I'll have a knife and fork, thanks. Chopsticks is the only thing. What if the heart of Nedslands is here? What if the good news of God is distributed by this little church on the corner? I will bring this to close, but I really want to encourage you, get involved in this place, in this body of Christ. We are more than we think we are, and I hope that I've been able to give you another perspective on what it could look like, a what if, through God's Spirit, somehow, together, He's purposed us, His church, to be far more than we could ever imagine. I might just close in prayer and um, thank you. Heavenly Father, thank you for your church. Thank you that you want us included. Thank you for taking our RSVP. Thanks that your spirit is with us in this place to be your representatives in the world. And may we represent you well through your spirit here, through your son's name, who is king, Jesus. Amen.